So before we start this week's episode of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, I need to I need to first get an oil change. And there's this place down the road. Uh, what's it called? Um, it's uh oh yeah oh yeah Riffy Lube. Yep, they just keep on coming. I'm I'm afraid I've got a couple more. Just roll with it. So this week's episode of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is with Jessica Leahy, episode 51. She wrote this great essay in the latest issue of Creative Nonfiction called I've Taught Monsters. And uh, it's great. It's what prompted me to reach out to her. And uh, let me read you a little bit of her bio right out of the, right out of the magazine. It says, Jessica Leahy is a teacher and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure. How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Her writing on education and child welfare appears regularly in The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, and The New York Times. She lives in New Hampshire and teaches in Vermont. And this was a uh, great conversation about the craft of writing, even podcasting, as she is a co-host of the Am Writing Podcast, Great Nuts and Bolts podcast. Can't recommend it enough. That's about it. Lots of great wisdom chopped up and served up in this episode. So I really hope you hope you dig it. If you do, share it with a friend. If you really dig the whole show, by all means, leave a review in iTunes or wherever you tend to listen to your podcast. Those uh, reviews are trickling in and they help the rankings. They help the visibility and help this thing grow. And the more writers and artists and creatives in the genre of creative nonfiction we can inspire and reach, the better off we'll all be. So without further ado, let's um, get right to it. It's Jessica Leahy, episode 51 of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. When you were when you were little to sort of living inside the language and words and wanting to wanting to like, you know, to be a writer and have your work read. I think I've always known that words were really powerful. And I've also known how powerful it is to, not powerful, that's the wrong word, but how um, devastating it can be when you don't use words correctly. You know, if you, I remember one time we had a really close family friend and I was trying to come up with an, as a, a joking insult for him. I was really little. And I remember thinking that the word Aphrodite sounded really dirty because it has mm-hmm. dity at the end, I think. And so I just screamed at the top of my lungs that he was a real Aphrodite. And um, people just thought this was hysterical. And I realized I was being laughed at because I had used a word incorrectly. And that was humiliating to me. And and there's also this just this incredible power of having I've always loved the idea that there's so many different ways to say something. And the the trick is to pick the right word so that the person who's listening or the person who's reading gets the clearest vision of what you're trying to say. And to me, when that, when those things slide into place or when you know you have just the right way of saying something, that is such a rush to me. I have um, my English teacher from high school, one of my two English teachers in high school that I, I really see as mentors to me. Um, when I was in, I think I was a senior in high school, I had this, I was writing a descriptive essay and I, I, specifically remember the passage I wrote about the sound it makes when you click your foot into a um, a bicycle racing pedal. And I remember on the side of the page, he wrote, oh, I can hear this. And I was, that was it. I mean, as far as I was concerned, that's, that's what I wanted to do was make people see or hear things the way 
I saw or heard them. And and that's, you know, partly it's about, I guess there's a little bit of narcissism there in the sense that you want people to experience what's in your head. But at the same time, there's also this, uh, this um, need to reach out and figure out a way that someone else will hear you. It's an incredible challenge. And I love that challenge. So how do you approach or reach that point when you have like the perfect sensory detail? And when does that sound right to you? The ones that tend to be the truest are the ones that just come and lay themselves down on the page. And and I don't even remember. I, I remember I was looking at, <clears throat> excuse me, someone quoted part of what I'd written for um, creative nonfiction, the um, I've Taught Monsters essay. And I was texting with her through Facebook. She's also a writer. And she said she really liked this one passage. And I said, how weird is it that I have to tell you I have no memory of writing that particular passage? Mm -hmm. Sometimes um, they just, these things just happen. And I don't know where they come from. Um, Partially, I think it's because I'm playing with language all the time with my students. I'm constantly talking to them about uh, ways to say things. Uh, they tend. Uh, many of my students tend to be fairly rudimentary writers. They tend to be a little bit behind in terms of skills, um, just by nature of where I teach, which I'm happy to go into. But so I'm constantly looking for ways to show them how to show, not tell. And that requires me to, you know, go through many iterations of how to describe a summer day or how to, you know, talk about the way your dog feels when you pet it. So I I love that. And I'm constantly playing with it for them. And that I think helps me be a little more facile with language. And yeah, and and this essay you allude to, I've taught monsters is a, you know, wonderful piece about yeah, about about teaching and how you transition from teaching like very privileged people to people who come from more uh, uh, backgrounds where there's a, a bit more turbulence. And mm-hmm. um, and I wonder like where where were you or what place were you in for like wor- word one draft one of this, <laughs> of this essay? Like I knew that I wanted to talk about this particular uh, assignment that I give on a fairly regular basis. It's based on a bit of Stephen King's on writing. Um, I, I talk a lot about Stephen King's on writing, mainly because I use it in my classroom so much. That book is not only incredibly informative and really helpful for kids when they're talking about uh, when they're trying to learn how to write, but also he he's an addict himself. And so that automatically catches the kid's attention. He's been through a lot. Uh, he's been poor. He's been, as he says, dog patch poor. And the kids respect that. Plus they like Stephen King. I mean, it, you know, when I, when I'm trying to get them hooked into reading and met, some of them are really reluctant about their reading, at least Stephen King is someone that I can, I can pull in a little bit just because, you know, they've at least heard of him. Many of these kids haven't heard of a ton of authors. So I use on writing a lot. And in that book, he talks about, uh, before his conscious brain knew he was an addict and an alcoholic, his subconscious knew, and it was coming out in his writing. And so I encourage my students to, as he talks about Annie Wilkes from Misery or the, the Tommyknockers from the book, the Tommyknocker, uh, the Tommyknockers, he, he talks about these creatures that arise from his self-conscious subconscious that are about, that are his addiction. The only way his brain can convey his addiction to the page is through these monsters. And so we, we conceive of our addiction and I say our, because I'm a recovering alcoholic myself, we conceive of our addiction in the form of a monster. And we talk about 
imagery and we talk about the fact that every good monster has to have some vulnerability somewhere. And so actually there is a second part to this assignment in which we conceive of the hero that can conquer the monster. But I knew this assignment was something I wanted to get down on the page at some point, And I just hadn't had a chance to do that. There wasn't, I'd, I'd written some little paragraphs about it, but I, I was really excited about the opportunity when the theme about how we teach uh, came up on the website, on the creative nonfiction website, because this seemed like the perfect opportunity. What's it like for you when you see the light bulb go on and when like you can just see the light bulb hovering over their head like when something clicks? What's that what's that like for you when you give them this kind of prompt? Uh well, I have to say it doesn't often happen when I give a prompt. The light bulb thing is an amazing moment and I get to see it a fair amount mainly because I used to teach middle school. In middle seventh and eighth grade and in middle school, two of the books I taught in seventh grade, I taught Great Expectations and in eighth grade, I taught A Tale of Two Cities, two books that um, for middle school students can be tough because their brains are still developing and metaphor and symbolism is not something that that most middle school students are fully ready for. But the nice thing about these two books is that they offer it up so constantly. They offer it up in every chapter. And so you give it to them and you hope at some point that the little connections in their brain happen. And at some point they're going to say, oh, my gosh, that's the thing she's been talking about this whole time. I understand this metaphor now. He's not talking about prisoners. He's talking or he's not talking about plants in a greenhouse. He's talking about prisoners in a prison. And that moment, it's their eyes get big, their faces get flushed. They get this look of excitement of almost like they're seeing, they can see it and you can, I can see it happening to them. And it's, it's just, it's magic. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It's just Mm -hmm. magic when you get to see that happen. And, you know, it, with the students I have now, it happens occasionally. The, The time that I love to see this happen is I play this game with them called etymology jeopardy. I'm a, I was a Latin teacher as well, and I love etymology. So I'll put words up on the board, and I'll show them how those words evolved. Like the, the word dandelion comes from dentelion, the, the teeth of the lion. And I try to I put the evidence for the word up there, the roots of the word up there, and and we try to guess what that English word would be, whether it's dandelion or um, corduroy, which means uh, the cord or the fabric of the king, or a word like calculus. A calculus in, in Latin means a small pebble, but it's the thing that Romans used to calculate with. So the word calculus or calculate comes from the word for a small pebble. And I don't think that many of them have ever considered the story behind the words that we use all the time, the st- where those words come from, and the fact that they are not just words, they're history. Language is um, language is our history, and language is a story of how we functioned, whether that's adding or whether that's how we clothed kings. I mean, it's really amazing to me that it's never occurred. And we, we you know, when we have a conversation about why um, we call farm animals like pigs, cows, chickens, but we call the prepared versions of them beef and pork and poultry. And I tell them about the fact that the the barnyard versions of those um of those animals, those are the words of the the poor used because they were the ones raising the animals and that the the words like beef and poultry, those are what the rich people used because they were being served those foods. And that's how those words evolved in our language. And they get these, you know, they get this look of revelation on their face like, huh, you know, I never thought about that before. And, And that's, you know, that's why I keep going back to the classroom, frankly. 
Yeah, and if uh, and if you don't necessarily see the light bulb go on, like when you you, you kind of reference the pencil scratching on the desk mm-hmm. in your essay, I, I imagine like that's a an equally validating thing that some, there's a process going on. You know, people mm-hmm. are thinking through things and getting stuff down on paper. So, like, what's that? You know, what's that like for you when it's when you're able to make that sort of that that connection and see see the process in action from your like roost on the desk. Well, the nice thing about the writing my students do now is that a lot of it goes back to whatever it is they're working on through their drug and alcohol recovery. Because especially with kids, the reason kids end up in uh, a rehab is usually because they're self-medicating some emotional trauma they've had. And as any English teacher or writing teacher knows, most of those, you know, when we're going to hear about emotional trauma, it most often comes out in writing. So any teacher of writing or English has encountered the essay where the kid admits to feeling suicidal or that they were abused or, you know, I've, even before I started teaching these kids, I got all kinds of confessions about stuff, um, which is, you know, a tangent why I think it's so important for English and writing teachers to have some training in sort of mental health 101 with kids. So now often the stuff they're working through in rehab comes up in the essays and there, it goes to some really, really dark places, especially when I ask them, to think about early memories, or I ask them to write about their monsters, or I ask them, you know, they tend to go dark with some of this stuff. And um, that's an incredible responsibility. I think any writing teacher has an incredible responsibility to his or her students in the sense that these are their experiences. And whether we agree with the grammar or the spelling or the whatever other problems they have, the stories they're telling us are really important. And we can't, we can't minimize that because I've done that in the past. I've made that mistake and it can, it can really crush a student, not just their, not just their, um, emotional state that day, but their faith in writing things down. And, and I think as a writing teacher, that's my first and foremost goal is to just encourage them to write. And then my secondary goal is to encourage them, you know, to write well so as long as I can keep the first part going, the the writing part, and and believe me, that can be tough sometimes. Um, then I'm I'm doing my job, and that's like I said, a huge responsibility. And uh, keeping in tune with uh, with this essay, um, you know, given what given what you've said, like how how would you describe your monster? I don't tell them about it um, early on. Mainly because anytime I'm talking about an essay and and I'm asking them to be really creative and I'm asking them to give me their experiences, I don't ever want my experiences of it Mm. to color theirs. So when we if we share afterwards and sometimes they're not ready to and that's okay. um, If we share afterwards, I do sometimes talk about mine and mine changes really. Um, You know, addiction is a tricky thing. It's it's a shape shifting tricky thing that sometimes feels like you know a big bird inside my chest and some, you know, I, I often will describe it in terms of poetry and, um, read some poetry to them that I think captures it, you know, whether that's sometimes it's, you know, Emily Dickinson's a certain, certain slant of light. And I just talk about it as being, you know, heavy, um, like cathedral tunes. And sometimes I talk about it as feeling like, um, a bird in my chest and forgive me, but I can't remember the author, the writer of that poem right now, Mm -hmm. but it depends on sort of where I am, just like it's going to change for them too. And I think helping them understand that 
it's not always going to be this huge and this scary. It's it's someday it's going to feel like something that can be pushed back in a box or can be, you know, tamed with a pointy stick. But today it may feel like a huge impenetrable thing. And then that's why it's so great to be able to use stories. I can talk about often what I'll talk about when I talk about the, um, the, the monster having a flaw, we talk, we end up talking about the Hobbit and we talk about the dragon having that one missing scale in the middle of his chest. And if we can just aim our arrow carefully enough, we can pierce it through the chest with that one, as long as we know that's there, as long as we know that, that, um, that, that soft spot is there because everything, every evil thing has a soft spot, I hope. And giving them hope for that, I think is part of my job too, because many of them uh, don't have a lot of hope. Uh, A lot of them write about some pretty dire stuff and um, giving them a little bit of hope and giving them reason to believe that um, having experiences outside of the experiences they've had so far in their life is possible. What was the impetus that made you want to take on the gift of failure <laughs> and uh, and pursue that project? Well, it's funny. My favorite quote in Gift of Failure is not mine. It's Richard Russo's, actually. I quoted Richard Russo in the conclusion of Gift of Failure because in a book that was a bunch of authors, and I don't think it's here in the room with me, so I don't know what, I can't remember the title. Um, There's a book that I have that's a bunch of different authors talking about To Kill a Mockingbird, and it was published, I don't know, five years ago, I think, 10 years ago, on one of the anniversaries of To Kill a Mockingbird. And Richard Russo talks about the fact that um, the best books aren't perfect books. The best books have these imperfections, and that's that's what I want in my children as well. You know, people, the most interesting people to me are not perfect people. They are the imperfect ones and helping our kids understand that they, you know, that they have imperfections. That's, and that's part of their beauty. That's what's important to me. Um, you know, I wrote the book because I've been a teacher now for almost 20 years and I've been a parent for just about the same amount of time. I I was pregnant when I started teaching in my first classroom and uh, I was really getting pissed off at the, mm-hmm. the parents of my students because, you know, all of these wonderful moments that I had, these opportunities I had to teach their kids something important like responsibility for their ma- materials or how to organize their time, that kind of stuff. You know, the parents seem to be constantly rescuing them from the from the uh, the ramifications of their mistakes and and therefore short-circuiting the whole learning process. And plus, my uh, the relationship I had with my students' parents was going down the toilet because it was becoming adversarial. It just, it was a mess. So I had, you know, this teacher vision and, um, that they were all bad. They were, you know, just wrecking my noble profession, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized I was actually doing the exact same thing to my own children. And I had one of those, you know, moments where, um, I couldn't be mad at those people out there because I was, I am one of those people who's, um, you know, making life a little too cushy for kids so they can't learn from their mistakes. So at the time I actually, I was fairly, I knew for a fact that it was wrecking their, um, my students motivation to learn, but I had a sneaking suspicion. It was actually messing with their ability to learn their actual ability to learn. And so I, I did a deep dive into the research for a couple of years and, and found out that that does happen to be true. And so now, you know, that, that book was a really important thing for me to write for my own children and for my students and to help the parents of my students understand 
how that the very things we're doing in order to feel good about our parenting, um, those things are handicapping our kids in terms of competence and in terms of um, even, you know, their self-esteem, which is a term I'm not a huge fan of. But, you know, going through that process completely changed my teaching and completely changed my parenting. So I'm I love having gone through that process. And it was a it was a really scary <laughs> process as well. Um, I was uh, the story I don't tell very often because it makes me want to barf is um, that the first draft of my book was uh, unbelievably bad. Uh, my my editor, Gail Winston at Harper Books, who I I have so much respect for her. She sat me down and she said this this book right in its current version is uh, unpublishable. Mm. And you know, I had a choice in that moment. I could uh, roll up in a, the fetal position and and go helpless and say, "Fine, let's get a ghost and and help me write this thing," or I could tell her to give me all the bad news, give me every criticism, give me everything that was wrong with it, and let me learn. And and I I begged her to let me have two chapters to try to rework the book on my own. And those two chapters um, turned into four, which turned into six, which turned into the whole book. And and luckily, I didn't need a ghost. And I didn't need um, someone else to sort of step in and rework the book for me, I was able to do it, but only because I was able to hear her feedback. So, you know, this book was definitely my own sort of gift to failure experience. And I, I'm really grateful for that because going into my next book, I, I feel like, man, I learned a lot <laughs> and right. I think it'll go a little easier this time because as a journalist, I was used to working in 800 to 2,500 word chunks. I wasn't, I, I didn't know what to do with 90,000 words. It was, that was, that was just an unfathomable scope. Um, but, but now I've learned and, you know, why on earth I thought, I would be perfect right out of the gate. I have, I have no idea, but anyway, there we are. It was a great learning curve for me. It was a very steep learning curve for me, but I'm still very grateful for it. What was unpublishable about it? You know, what was some of that feedback <laughs> yeah. that you had to digest and then, you know, work at? Organization. It really was about the organization. The, she said the writing was fine. The writing was compelling, but my, I didn't know how to take, what essentially, I think a lot of journalists make the same mistake. In fact, I know they do because she told me they do. We tend to put a whole bunch of pieces, a whole bunch of essays, a whole bunch of columns into one book and say, here, look, here's my, you know, this anthology of things. Doesn't it make a pretty whole book? It's 90,000 words. Look, I did it. Um, but there's no thread of organization through the whole thing. It really came down to looking at each chapter and how each chapter was structured and following a format that made sense to the reader that wouldn't confuse the reader so that a reader would know where to look if they had a five-year-old and they were looking for advice versus whether they had a, a if they had a 16-year-old and they were looking for advice. I needed to make it so that um, my advice, my, um, that I guided them through the book. And, you know, this is something I tell my students all the time. Don't make it hard for your reader. Give your reader a, a path to follow that makes sense to them. And if I'm reading your essay and I'm confused by something, any reader is going to be confused by it. So address the confusion. And I didn't read my own book from the perspective of, you know, that objective sort of baseline knowledge, uh, 
person that was just going to come at the, the reader. I wasn't thinking like my reader. I was thinking maybe like my ideal reader, or I was thinking like myself, or I was thinking like my friends who all happen to be parenting writers and maybe have heard this stuff a thousand times. But I wasn't thinking from the perspective of sort of the average Joe on the street that might buy my book. So that was a great lesson. And, and that's certainly not something I'd never heard before. You know, I get when I turn in my articles at The Atlantic or at The New York Times, I'll often get, you know, the criticism that there's jargon in there and I have to remind myself, oh, right, I have to get rid of the jargon. I have to speak um, with sort of a common uh, language there and explain things better. So it's it was an incredible process of, of learning how to empathize with my reader and to be there for my reader when they needed something from me, which wasn't how I was thinking when I started the book. What was the process like for you to go from relative anonymity to being like a fairly very you know very visible on a national stage yeah. like talking about this like how how did you how did you process that cuz that that's an awful big awful big jump that a lot of people um struggle with Yeah it um I was lucky in that it actually happened more slowly than sort of the outside, an outside person might perceive. So I had been writing about education for a while. And then I was asked by a wonderful editor, um, Robert Pondicio, who had worked in journalism and was writing for the Core Knowledge blog. And he asked me to participate in that blog at the time. And and that had a really healthy readership in really well-informed education people. So then my readership expanded from there and my blog started picking up steam. And then I started writing for The Atlantic and then I started writing for The New York Times. And so slowly I'm sort of picking up audience. And then when so we had a big auction for my book. I was really, you know, I was, I'm not a lot, my, <laughs> my friend, uh, and, and podcasting partner in crime, KJ Delantonio, she used to be my editor at the New York times. She says, I'm not allowed to say the word lucky because it wasn't a luck thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote an article for the Atlantic called why parents need to let their children fail. I submitted it to the Atlantic on a Monday um, and it was published on Monday afternoon, no, Tuesday morning. And by Tuesday afternoon, I was getting asks for national media. And by Thursday, I was doing national television. So that was really fast. And then and then it became clear really quickly that this was a book that publishers were interested in. And so we ended up having um, an 11 publisher auction for the book. And we knew that we knew it was going to sort of make some waves. And so my agent actually was really great. She talked to me about some of this stuff and a previous agent that I had been working with had said the same thing. You know, do you, number one, is this something, is this book, whatever project you're working on, something you want to be talking about for years on end, because that's what's going to happen if it does well. And do you want to be known as gift of failure lady? I mean, that's, you know, that's really what it, comes down to. And, and that was a hard decision to make. And I had to talk with my children and I had to talk to my husband. So by the time we sold the book, I was kind of prepared for there at least to be some exposure on my, you know, to my family. Um, and that's, it's, it's gone pretty well. It's, there hasn't been a ton of negative blowback. There's been a little, um, but since everything I write about my family, I've sort of pre they get all full approval on all that stuff. Um, I think it's been okay. I had, I had a long period of time to get used to not reading the comments and not reading reviews and stepping away, especially in places like the New York times and the Atlantic stepping away from the comments and just not allowing my head to get stuck in that muck and mire. Um, by the time the book came out, 
I think I had some perspective. Um, and while it's been really trippy, I mean, people will talk to me about things they know about me and I, that I have forgotten I put in the book and that's weird. Mm -hmm. Um, and I talk about stuff on the podcast with KJ. I mean, KJ is one of my best friends. And so we talk to each other on the podcast as if, you know, we're talking to our best friends, which basically we are and stuff comes out. And then I completely forgot I said it. And then I go somewhere to do a speaking event and people are like, Oh, how's the puppy doing? And I'm like, what? Oh, the puppy. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a really weird, it's very odd. I have to say it's also a huge responsibility. I mean, I think this year at the beginning of this year, and especially with what's been going on politically, I've been doing a lot of thinking about how I want to use that. And for me, the answer has always been fairly easy and it remains, it remains fairly clear to me. And that's, um, kids. Um, I, I really, I write, my agenda is to speak for people who, don't really have a voice. Um, and, and that's my students. And that's, uh, you know, lately the stuff I've been writing about has to do with, you know, making sure kids have due process, full due process rights and making sure that kids are getting a good education. And as long as I keep my focus there, I think, I think I'll be okay. Mm. And, and like with, with, uh, you know, longer narrative stuff like the book and this recent essay of taught monsters, like how do you, uh, approach it from just a craft point of view, like what's your mm-hmm. sort of routine as you're trying to, you know, drill down, get that maybe what Anne Lamont would call the shitty first draft mm-hmm. early. Yeah. How, how do you work through it? I, it's been really lovely. I've gotten to the point now where I've realized that long walks and gardening, weeding, things like that are actually part of my process. They really truly are. And the sort of the first 20 minutes of my day, when I first wake up, I'm very fortunate in that my kids are responsible and get up for themselves and go get the bus themselves. And my husband gets himself out early in the morning. So I'm left with about 20 minutes in the morning where I get to just lay there and let my brain do that. Like, just out of sleep unhinged thing where it sort of roams and it's, um, I work out a lot of stuff that way. And yes, I keep paper and pen next to my bed and I tend to write lots of stuff down then. And when I'm falling asleep, so that's my first really important part of the process because that's where I get that first, um, kernel of whatever it's going to be. And from there often I'll just sit down and start to write because like with, um, I've, I knew that, I knew I liked that line. I've taught monsters mainly because my students are not monsters and it, there's that double meaning, um, because it was about teaching the monsters themselves, not teaching my students. And all I could hear in my head, and actually it went off the rails at first I had in my head, um, someone reading, um, uh, Langston Hughes, um, uh, you know, I've known rivers, deep, dark rivers, blah, blah, blah. So that was in my head. And my first version was this horrible sort of, you know, using the Langston Hughes too much and letting that tone come out. And, and, and when I first started writing, I, I knew the, uh, with this piece, I knew exactly where I was going to end up, which was with a story that never ended up in the essay actually. But I had the, the ending written, which was, I ran into a former student of mine that had written this, this essay about monsters. And I knew what my last line was going to be, which is that when I waved goodbye to him, he was working somewhere and I saw him and we had a great conversation and he was doing great. My last line of the essay was going to be that, you know, as uh, I waved goodbye to him standing on the stairs of the whatever, not a monster in sight. I was positive that Mm -hmm. that was going to be the last line of this essay and it just didn't work. So, um, you know, I ended up with something completely different than I expected, but, you know, something that 
you know, I liked better. And then I actually have to say, <laughs> I found out about the deadline for this essay about 48 hours before it was due. So I worked, I wrote it really, really quickly. Mm. Uh, and the editors I worked with there at Creative Nonfiction were spectacular. Um, the second version, once I got feedback, was much, much better. There was more of a narrative through line about teaching. There was more, um, it was just richer. So I was really, really happy to get those edits. What about the the writing or the editing process or the rewriting process do you most most enjoy? Which part sort of it just stimulates your brain a bit more? <laughs> it's well, first I have to say that when you get those edits back, this it was this way for the book, it was this way for, you know, just about everything I write. You're like, oh, great, the edits are here. And then you're like, oh, the edits are here. Um, (laughs) And sometimes I get a little snack, get myself a cup of coffee. I have to sort of do that. Am I mentally prepared? Because I could open this and it could say, oh, my gosh, I don't know what we were thinking. This is horrible. We're rescinding, you know, we're taking back our offer to write to publish it or just carnage. (laughs) Well, and I've I've had the worst case scenario, which is we can't publish this, you know, That, that, well, and I I guess in a way that's, I face the worst. So I I, I guess most stuff is fixable, but I was actually talking, um, on our, my own podcast with my editor, my former editor, KJ, about the fact that I got something back recently that had an edit that was going to be really tough. I was going to have to go find another source, track down another source, interview another source. And it just with deadlines for other things coming up just sounded insurmountable and, and too hard. Uh, and I could have very easily just said, oh, forget it. I'm not going to do this. But I did it. It wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be, which edits are never as hard as you think they're going to be. Once you get in it, once you've opened the document and you've started reading the comments and you get through the original, the, you know, you get through the easy stuff like, OK, take out this comma or, oh, whoops, I didn't mean to use that semicolon. Then you get into the hard stuff. You leave the, you know, oh, this a whole section needs to be reworked because you really sh- moved off of your narrative thread and this is going off on some weird tangent. You know, it's hard to get rid of that stuff. But at the same time, there's that moment of exhilaration where you say, oh, this is really clicking. And there are always also those moments where I hold off on an edit and I, I have, you know, with every editor I've ever had, no matter how wonderful, there's that edit where you're, um, you get a little indignant and you're like, oh, no, that's good. I'm keeping that. There's no reason to change that. What is she talking about? <laughs> I'd say almost always the editor's right. Um, I, yeah. I uh, there was one exception. So I had a, I had a lot, I had a new editor once and I had a line in a piece that was my favorite line in the piece. And I knew, I knew it was really important. And I knew it was the line that would get quoted a lot because it really encapsulated the whole piece and the, the, my editor wanted to get rid of it. And I said, I can't, no, that I, I, I'd rather not have this piece run than get rid of this particular line. And we have, we've known each other for a long time now, this editor, and every once in a while, whenever it goes out on Twitter, and that's inevitably the quote that gets put on the Twitter card for the piece, um, I'll, I'll send it to her just for fun, <laughs> just right. to sort of poke her a little bit. Because, you know, an editor has a lot of power over the writer, and, and it, it, the, the bad editors forget that, forget that there's a human being on the other side of those edits. But the really great editors, and I've been very, very lucky to have great editors, remember that there's a person there who is invested in this piece of writing and sometimes is going to push back a little bit and that that's part of the process. It's not 
just being argumentative or, or being problematic. And I try to limit the number of times I question an editor, but you know, when it's something that's really important and I, and I begin to trust my gut and that's, that was actually the most important part of my learning curve with being a journalist and with writing this book was starting to learn when to push back that I went those moments where I know I'm right and I need to keep something. Um, I'm starting to trust that a little bit better, a little bit more while still, also having huge faith in the editing process. I remember hearing Ron, Le Ron Lieber um, at the New York Times, who writes the Your Money column. He and I have the same editor at Harper. And he was about to get the edits back for his amazing book, uh, The Opposite of Spoiled. We were just staggered a little bit in our in our timeline with our books. And I said, so you're about to get your edits back. You know, are you scared? And he's like, no, I'll just I'll get the edits back and I'll do them. She's probably going to be right. Mm -hmm. And that's the voice of a guy who is used to being heavily edited and who trusts editors. And, you know, for him, it worked great. And I've tried to adopt a Ron Lieber sort of, um, you know, calm, cool cucumber demeanor when it comes to being edited. So while I wouldn't say I love the editing process, I will say it makes me a better writer and I learn a lot from it. It, it takes a while to not take those edits personally personally you know you know like uh, uh, dinty moore was talking about that like it's 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 the work that's being criticized not the writer mm -hmm. and so i think it takes a long time to sort of divorce yourself from the work like and when you see all those red track changes and mm -hmm. all it's it's not the writer it's it's just the work now now and when the editor is enrolled in that process it's just like okay well Oh, this is great. This is the gift that you're giving me to make the work better. And it takes a yeah. while to get to that point. Well, uh, so I live across the street from um, Jenny Bent, who runs, who owns uh, the Jenny Bent, Ag the Bent Agency. It's a literary agency. And she, every once in a while, I'll say something to her like, yeah, my agent rejected me four times before she took me on as a client. And Jenny will say, no, 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 she didn't reject you. She rejected the project. Um, I think. And then I'm also reminded that when I first, when Gift of Failure first came out, I got a lot of questions about how boys and girls react differently to failure or if they react differently, excuse me, differently to failure. And um, Rachel Simmons, who has written a couple of fantastic books about girls, Odd Girl Out, Odd Girl Speaks. She's just she's a fantastic writer and she works with uh, girls leadership. She wrote a review for Time magazine about gift of failure. And the whole article was about the fact that girls do take um do take failures and mistakes and errors differently than boys do. And of course, as always, this is a gross overgeneralization, but that girls tend to internalize the mistakes and the failures and, and see those failures as their own, as, as of themselves. Like I failed, not that project is a failure or this draft is a failure or that paragraph is a failure. It's I failed in this. Whereas boys, again, gross oversimplification, tend to see the mistakes as this thing that's outside of them. Oh, that was a mistake. I am not a failure. That thing I did over there is a failure. So if I, if Rachel is correct in that assessment, then I do try to think about that when it comes to my students, that when I'm editing a paper, I try to make it really clear that they're, it's their writing we're talking about, not them as human beings. But it's easy to say when a when, you know, when I got that feedback about my book, I did feel like a failure. I felt like, I felt like I'd been handed this incredible opportunity and I had somehow squandered it. But, but I think allowing, uh, stepping away from 
failures and seeing them as the our output, the result of our work, as opposed to us. We, I am not the failure. My the, this thing I just created may not work very well, but that's not any. That's not that doesn't mean that I'm I stink. So that's also been a process. And I think that's been a process also of that whole thing I talked about before about not looking at comments and, you know, especially places that where the comments are open and not moderated in any way. If you venture in there, there are going to be people who are mean just for the sake of being mean. And if I were to take any of that personally, man, I'm sunk before I even begin because then I'm writing for commenters or writing, you know, I do sometimes write for my editor because I trust her judgment, but I can't write for commenters. I can't write for the people who um, aren't, you know, don't have a little skin in the game. Your your podcast, uh, the Am Writing podcast, and also when you cite uh, Stephen King's on writing mm-hmm. and through a lot of your work, um, his well, that particular book like demystifies the pro- the process a lot, and I think makes writing in general a lot more inviting and sort of breaks down those walls. And I think like your podcast is doing that same thing. Um, like, so what do you think people are 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 struggling with? the most to to maybe fulfill uh, a creative itch or Mm -hmm. to get writing down like what in your experience what are people battling with it's been interesting the feedback we get from the podcast um at first i felt we were being too wonky we were talking about a lot of the nuts and bolts stuff like we talk a lot about how to pitch how to query, how to find an agent, how to, um, you know, how to, the how to's of the process. One of the, our frequent, uh, guests is this woman, this writer, Serena Bowen. She, it's not her real name. She writes under a pseudonym, but Serena comes on our podcast because Serena has published both in, um, traditional publishing and is an incredibly successful self-published author. She writes, uh, contemporary romance. And what she gets asked most often is, okay, I have finished writing the document. I have saved the document. Now I want to turn it into an EPUB. How, what, what do I press? What button do I press? So it turns out that when I'm out there in the world, the questions I get about writing really are about those nuts and bolts moments. How do, how do you like to do edits in comments or do you like to do edits with track changes? Do you like to do, you know, that kind of stuff. And not a lot of there aren't a lot of books out there anyway. There are some podcasts, but there aren't a lot of books out there that really answer those nuts and bolts questions. And now the thing I like most about on writing and the reason that I read it over and over and over again, and actually I listen to it over and over and over again. I'm a huge audiobook fan. The reason I listen to it over and over again is that I find it makes me want to write. And my, my 13 year old and I were listening to it yesterday, actually in the car on the way back from our dog obedience class. And it, I, every time I listen to it and listen to him talk about his basement place, his far seeing place, falling through the page, um, you know, all of those the joy that he expresses about the process of writing, that makes me want to write too. And I remember when my older son and I were listening to it years and years ago, my older son's now 18 and about to head off to college. He was saying years ago when we were listening to it, he said, this makes me want to want to write. Let's get home so that I can go work on something. So anything that does that for me, oh, I'm hooked. I'm in and I'll listen over and over and over again. And and also there's something compelling about his voice uh, reading that book because you can hear in his voice how much he loves to write and how 
um, the writing saved him, um, especially in the last section when he talks about his accident, that in the end, it, it was the work that saved him. And I think when people start to get precious about writing and don't treat it like a job, don't treat it like something you have to get up go sit down, keep your butt in the chair. Our tagline at the podcast is keep your butt in the chair and your head in the game Hmm. because it is a job. If you choose to take writing on as a job, it is my job. It's not this thing that I can allow to be dictated by the muses. It has to be something that I, I need to be able to write on demand. And there are tricks to making that happen. And that's what we tend to write about or talk about on the podcast, the business of being a writer, how to cobble out a living doing it, how to, um, you know, those, what button, you know, do you like Scrivener or do you like Word? And when you use Scrivener, how do you compile the document so that you can turn it into your agent? Those sort of very nuts and bolts things. Um, we, We were lucky enough recently to interview some writers, a comedy writer and a travel writer. And especially with the comedy writer, her name is Wendy Ahrens and she's, she's a fantastic writer. But how do you, how do you talk about the nuts and bolts of being funny? But she did it. And it, I learned a lot from her about, you know, how to add more humor into my writing and, and actual practical tips about being funny, which you wouldn't think those two things would go together very well, but they do. She did a really good job with that. So, you know, I hope that in every single podcast, KJ and I always say, are we, are we offering something helpful this week? We record once a week and we try to have, we try to make sure that it's not just us talking about our agents and our publishers, because a lot of people that listen to us don't have an agent yet, don't have a publisher. They're just trying to get started and they want to know what button to push (laughs) when they need to compile that document so that they can send it to an agent and they need to know how to query an agent and that kind of thing. So we hope that that's what we're providing. So if someone wants to turn pro, what do you, what do you tell them? What's the first actionable step if someone's looking to take their writing into that more vocational realm? That's tricky because the, you know, I would, the easy thing to say is to start, you know, make sure you, you know, let's say it's magazines, make sure you read the magazines and you're familiar with the tone and you're familiar. We talk about all this stuff ad nauseum on the podcast, but I, I, I hate to say this, but the real, the reality is, is that if, you do get something published. Let's say you hit really early. Let's say you send something off and it's your crazy miracle happens and it's your first piece. And let's say it's done really well. Well, you've got nothing else in the, in the hopper. You've got nothing else sort of there for people to go to and say, Oh yeah, look, she's got all this other work. That's so great. So it's the main reason I'm not allowed to use the word lucky when it comes to gift of failure, because by the time gift of failure happened, I had been writing for many years and I had many, many, many blog posts. I had many pieces of work to point to, to say, oh, this is also what I write about. Oh, look, publisher, here are all the interviews I've done on other pieces I've written. So yes, I will have an in, oops, I will have an in to the, uh, to the marketplace mm-hmm. or, you know, here's, here's all the stuff that I've done over the years that show that I'm not a one trick pony because, you know, the minute you want to get someone interested in your work the first question is going to be like, okay, well this happened, but does that mean that she can do it again? So, and, and Stephen King again says, read a lot and write a lot. And that, you know, you can't possibly hope to play with words unless you have a lot of words at your disposal. And the way you do that is by reading. There's just, there's just no way about around it. And, you know, he talks about the fact that he was sort of the last generation of writers that 
grew up without a television set and that we would do well to cut the cord to our television set. So as much as possible, I try to do that, you know, um, create a routine, get your butt in the chair, get your head in the game and sit down and, and write whether, and (laughs) there's, there have been plenty of days where I, I, we have a, we actually have this thing uh, Serena and KJ and myself, we, we text each other all day long, every day. And when we get our sticker, which represents a thousand words, um, it's a sticker that we stick in our, ca- in our calendar on the day, we text each other the word sticker. We're each other's accountability buddies, because mm. even if those thousand words stink, it doesn't matter. There's still a thousand words. You still get credit for those thousand words. And those thousand words may not be a part of an eventual manuscript. Those thousand words may be an essay that you publish six years from now. Um, there's plenty of stuff that I've jotted down during my thousand words that, uh, I may never use at all, but it develops some other idea that ends up being something that I use later. And it's also kind of apt. I'm listening right now to, um, David Sedaris's new book, um, theft by finding and theft by finding are his journals. And I have been feeling bad that I'm not a good journal keeper because this man has an unbelievable reserve of material and quotes and all this stuff that a writer would dream of happening. But that's because every single day since he was in his twenties, he has written at, you know, some, probably somewhere around a thousand words. Um, and that's powerful. That's really powerful. It's practice. Number one, um, writing takes practice just like, you know, my learn knowing how to write a full length book wasn't something I could do right out of the blocks. Um, you know, all writing takes practice, but also it just, it's a muscle memory thing. Um, sitting down and being able to have the words come on demand a thousand words a day, 2000 words a day on a fixed schedule takes practice. And the writers who are most prolific, like for example, Serena Bowen, Serena Bowen puts out a couple of books a year, Wow, And I'll ask her about, I'll say something like, oh, so have you gotten started on that thing you're working with, with that new co-author? She's like, oh yeah, we, I finished that two weeks ago. I'm on to the next thing now. Hmm. That's because this woman every single day sits down and writes and, you know, she's amazing, but it's not a trick. (laughs) It's hard work. Um, when I'm asleep on an airplane and she's going somewhere with me, inevitably she's sitting next to me and working. Um, it's so you know, I can't make any excuses for the fact that I'm not as prolific as she is with my writing because I simply don't write as much as she does. Yeah, it's, it's work. Yeah, there's a it, sort of to the point with uh, Sedaris's journals. It kind of reminded me of this Chinese proverb that is like the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the second yeah. time is not is now. Right. So it's like, all right, yeah, maybe you've lost that 20 years of of journaling, but you know, you can start today and plant, plant that. Yeah. It kind of goes to your gardening. You know, you said like gardening is a big, is, is big mm-hmm. for you, but that's such a great metaphor for writing. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, the, the planning, the, the planning to yeah. plant and then the weeding of, you know, it's yeah. just, it's an editing process unto itself. Well, and there's, I remember specifically a problem I worked out with gift of failure. I was having this uh, on one of the chapters. I just, I couldn't, couldn't figure out how something was happening. And there's a a weed here in New Hampshire that I have a ton of, and it's called, we, I don't know what other people call it. It's Bishop's weed here in our, in our neck of the woods. And it, it sends out these, um, these roots that are 
pretty easy to tease out of the soil if you kind of loosen the soil around them, but they're white. They're really easy to see and they're, they go for long distances and you have to untangle them from the roots of other things. And so there is this moment when I'm untangling these white roots away from the roots in my raspberry patch um, that that sort of giving my hands something to do, doing the untangling with my hands helped my brain do the untangling too. And, and I had it and I had to come in and, you know, I tracked dirt all over the house and I actually have pictures of, um, out in the garden. I have pictures with my, a journal next to me, a notebook next to me that's just covered with dirt. And, you know, I've got gardening gloves on sometimes when I'm doing it. So the handwriting's really messy, but there are many, many times I'm out in the garden with a pad of paper because that is often where I get, um, I get my best stuff. And then my family also knows that when I come back from a run, a hike, or especially a long cross-country ski, I need a few minutes because I I do a lot of writing when, especially when I'm doing something like cross-country skiing. And, and there was an essay I wrote once that I particularly loved that I wrote completely in my head while I was out doing a 10K ski. And that that essay, all I had to do then was just dump on the paper. So being out there, that has to, I've had to not feel guilty about that. I've had to learn that that's, that's a part of my process. And, and I can't, I can't make it, I can't feel guilty. I can't say, Oh, you know, I don't want to work right now. I'd rather go for a walk. No, no, no. Going for a walk right now when I'm feeling a little bit stuck, that's, that's a part of the process. And that's an important part of my process. You know, writing isn't just, you know, putting pencil to paper or something like thinking about it, going for that walk, doing any sort of meditative practice mm-hmm. like that is is part of the process. It doesn't necessarily feel like work, but it does inform and feed the work. And it's a kind of an investment in the work to take some time away from yeah. it. Well, and I guess the other thing is, you know, the the danger is, is that you pontificate on the great American novel that you mm. want to write for 20 years and never actually, you know, get anything down except for a few scribblings. Right. Um, you know, you have to do the work, too. But, yeah, the, the writing and uh, for me also. Uh, I write about teaching. So it's really important to me that I can that I stay in the classroom and I can't do it full time because I travel a lot um, to speak um, at schools mainly and community stuff. And uh, it's but I still teach part time because I have to. That's it doesn't it feeds my soul. It feeds my work. It, it's what I am. I am a teacher. So um, for me, it's really important to take that time away from the writing to lead the life that feeds the writing. And when I'm walking, I'm usually walking with my kid or my dog and um, my husband and, you know, going off to teach at school. That's That's where the good stuff is. And so, you know, we can't you can, being one of those writers that that lives to write um, that's that's ex- exempting out a big chunk of life that feeds the writing and I, I I like to keep a good balance. Just one more thing before I let you get out of here, Jessica is um, yeah. what does how and how do you define hard work as a writer? Mm-hmm. It's it's a kind of this nebulous area. Like you don't necessarily, you know, you're you're not you don't have blisters. You know, you're not mm-hmm. sweating, maybe. But <laughs> yeah. But like, what does? How would you define hard work as a writer and, and a creative? I really, it sounds really simple and superficial, but I really word count. Um, word count and, and being committed, um, and being serious about the process, not serious. Like, you know, you, you, you have to always, you know, write, like you're trying to write a, a, sh- a Russian short story, but because you're, 
serious about the writing and you're serious about the word choice um, and you're serious about about getting that word count done every day because that's you're committed to that. Um, I know plenty of people who don't make a living just from their writing and, and, you know, right before and after work. That's serious. I know teachers, for God's sake, teachers who get up at five o'clock in the morning so that they can publish books while they're teaching full time. And, you know, that that's hard work right there. Um, it's the work of being a writer means that means that you get words on the page. It's as simple as that. It means that you read, it means that you write, and it means that you get words down on the page. Well, fantastic. Thank you. You know, this is, that's a perfect place to, to end <laughs> on. Cause that's just, uh, that's just a powerful, uh, powerful knockout punch right there. I love it. There's no way around it either. It's just, no. you know, it, they're either words there or they're not. It's a pretty black and white, so to speak, thing. Fantastic. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for, for carving out uh, some time in your morning here to, to do oh, this. Oh, absolutely. This is a big pleasure for me to speak with you. Maybe sometime down the road we can have you on for a round two. Uh, that would be absolutely great. I would love that. Fantastic. Well, keep up the great work and we'll be in touch. Thank you. You got it. Take care. So thank you so much to Jessica Leahy for coming by the podcast. It was a great conversation. I hope you got a lot out of it. And um, you know that you know that time around the holidays, the doorbell rings, you open the door. You're like, oh great, the edits are here. And then you're like, oh, the edits are here. All right, that's it for this week. Tune in next week. We're back with more of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Thank you very much.